Thanks for listening to the Doug Gottlieb Show podcast. Be sure to catch us live every weekday, 3 to 6 Eastern, 12 to 3 Pacific on Fox Sports Radio. Find your local station for the Doug Gottlieb Show at foxsportsradio.com or stream us live every day on the iHeartRadio app by searching FSR. Now let's get this party started. You're listening to Fox Sports Radio. What up, Doug Gottlieb Show? Fox Sports Radio. So uh, there's a bunch of things I want to get to, and uh, you know what? It's my show, so we can actually get to them, you know? And uh, first, let me start with some news you just heard. Some news you just heard from, uh, from Dan Beyer. John Lester is going to retire from Major League Baseball. That's, that's one of those names where you're like, that guy lived... Um, that guy lived an incredible baseball life, didn't he? I want you to think about it for a second. First, John Lester, he's the one, he had cancer. He survived cancer, came back and won a World Series with the Red Sox, right? That's the same John Lester, right? He was, um, I think, a five-time All-Star, if I remember. There was a time in which John Lester was a money, big-game pitcher. Led the league in strikeouts per nine innings one year. And then he goes to Chicago. He also was part of the club that erased the curse. So he beat cancer. He sort of overcame the yips in throwing to first base, right? And he was a great big game pitcher. When you remember John Lester, how are you going to remember? Like, which of those three things are, are going to be your memories of him as a player? I would say, I would, I would, I would go Cubs and and the, the cancer thing was a long, long time ago, but it was very much a big story. What do you think, Byer? When you, when I say John Lester, fifteen years from now, you'd be like, oh yeah, yeah, the guy who, which is it going to be? Wouldn't throw to first base. Remember one time he threw his glove. He threw the ball with the with the in a ball in the glove, or he threw it underhand. Eventually, sort of overcame it. But but is what will John Lester be known as the big game pitcher, the cancer survivor, or the guy who couldn't throw to first base? I looked at it as the cancer survivor who won three World Series during his career and was one of the better pitchers in baseball. Didn't even think about the yips that he had. Uh, maybe unfair to Chuck Knobloch, but didn't even think of it with Lester. Uh, thought about his success, but even when he had all of his success, whether it's winning World Series or being at the top of his game. He was always the guy that beat cancer to me, yeah. and and that's not to diminish his accomplishments, but I think that that's the biggest accomplishment that he had, and was uh, you know such a part of how I remember his baseball career. Also, a guy that uh, by and large, he had a couple years where he had some had some. He was he was actually in Oakland. Like people forget, he spent a year in Oakland. I was like, what? Yeah, that's when he left Boston. He went to Oakland for a year. And had an injury shortened. Uh, it was oh, no, actually it was tra- maybe he's traded away. Was he traded midseason? Yeah, I, I think, think that was that was uh... that was the back end of his uh, of his tenure with with Boston. Yeah, but wasn't Oakland. there a year that the A's just went all in? And yeah, I, was, that was it, it. Was, was that it? Twenty fourteen. Yeah, yeah. he and he so... pitched that game against Kansas City in the wild card, and they were up like seven nothing. Remember that? And then they they end up losing the game. That's right. Yeah. That was the Lester game. They decided that to keep him in. Card? Yeah, it was a it was a wild card game to get into the yeah. playoffs. Oh, that was the play in game to get. Yeah, in? the play in yeah. game. Okay, I'm sorry. I, I thought I thought Kansas City beat Texas to get in that year. Kansas City didn't they beat Texas and then they beat 
the the Angels, or am I thinking of a different year? It might be a different well, 20, year. Well, twenty fourteen was the year that they lost to the Giants in the World Series. The Royals did because then the next okay, year they so, beat the Mets. Okay, so it was the year before they they the the next year they they beat the the Rangers, then the Angels, and then eventually beat the Mets, and the Mets had all those errors. Okay, That's good. correct. All right. Then he went to the then went to the Cubs. I saw this part when I when I when I first saw the retire. I went and looked at. He made one hundred and eighty eight point five million dollars pitching sixteen seasons in Major League Baseball. But here's what's crazy. Um, are you guys okay? Like he was very good at times with the Cubs, but he was I he had the one great year with the Cubs. But I would say he was equally outstanding with the Red Sox. He was with the Red Sox for nine years plus the minor leagues, made $30 million. He was with the Cubs for six years. He made $145 million. Hmm. I mean, I just, just that, that one popped out to me. Anyway, John Lester was a great big game pitcher. In many ways, here's one. He's kind of Kurt Schilling-like. Right? Like, he was great in the, the 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 thing that made Lester really really good was he was really good in the playoffs. Great big game pitcher, you know that that's how I remember him. Um, you know especially you know World Series when they beat St. Louis, he was unbelievable, unbelievable. And he was I thought pretty good when they won the World Series against Cleveland. I remember being good, not great. Um, Schilling though was amazing big game pitcher. Yeah, and even during his, you know, we had talked about the this cap, yeah, of going into Cooperstown, and he said that really with the Diamondbacks is when he made his mark. But he was so good with the Phillies, uh, obviously with the Diamondbacks, and then just what he meant for Boston and and winning when they did. Doug Gottlieb show here on Fox Sports Radio. Anyway, so uh, John John Lester, John Lester. Retires. Is he a Cub or is he a Red Sox? I mean, he's not going in the Hall of Fame. I don't think. Is he going in the Hall of Fame? I don't think so. But I think he's got a very good, very good career. Very good career. How many wins? Take a guess, Ramos. Okay, 16 years. How many wins do you think he has? I don't know if you, you knew this. I would say 225. Right on 200. Right on 200. Three three point six six career ERA. Uh, came in post steroid era, so you can't say well his numbers would have been better if it was you know, steroid era, right? Post post steroid era. Um, led the league in wins once, win loss percentage once, strikeouts per nine once, shutouts once. Hall of very good, not Hall of Fame. But if he were to go in the Hall of Fame, which he won't, I. Boy, what would he go in as? I think he'd go in as a cub. Mm. Oh, that's a hard one. Seems like a Hall of Famer to me. I mean, 200 wins nowadays. You just don't get to that point. And the three World Series and the big game reputation. I mean, it seems like a Hall of Famer. He never won a Cy Young. He finished second in the Cy Young Award voting. He was a four-time, five-time All-Star. I'm with Bayer. I think Hall of Very Good, not Hall of Fame. Um, but he was he was a really good big game pitcher. He was really good for a long time. He had a 3.66 career ERA. Uh, he pitched in both leagues for almost the same number of years. And then, you know, I don't know the advanced metrics and, and how he did. 
in the postseason, how about this one? He had a 2.51 ERA. So his postseason ERA was one run lower than his regular season ERA. I, I, we are debating whether Kurt Schilling will get in or not, and there may be other reasons why Kurt Schilling doesn't get in. But on baseball performances, like when we're looking at what Kurt Schilling did, I think that Kurt Schilling, I mean, he was just a horse. And it's no disrespect to John Lester. I just think that Kurt Schilling was just a better pitcher when you're looking at the two. And now we're debating on whether Kurt Schilling will get in in his 10th and final time. And so I think that tells you how difficult it was, you know, to get in. And we recently, within the past, what, two years, had a had a Hall of Fame class when no one got in. Right. So, you know, while the, while the Pro Football Hall of Fame, you know, has not had an empty spot in a class in like over a decade where they're always putting seven guys into the Hall of Fame, it's the exact opposite with baseball. And I just look at, you know, you look at what Schilling did, and I just brought up, you know, his stats – uh, led the big leagues in complete games four times, uh, was a NLCS MVP, World Series MVP. Um, just <laughs> the amount of innings that he threw, the wins. Kurt Schilling, yeah. but but Kurt Schilling in twenty years only two hundred sixteen wins. I and and not that wins and losses. His ERA is almost exactly the same, three point four six. Um, his his postseason, and I agree, he's a great postseason pitcher. A two point two three ERA, which is lower than Lester's. Eleven and two in the postseason. Well, Kurt Schilling was amazing. Yeah, and amazing. Schilling's first and, three years in Baltimore um, were uh, very limited. So yeah, yeah. just well, as a but, but you could say that Lester yeah. lost those first couple years because he was coming back from cancer, mm-hmm. right? We could we could say that Schilling did pitch. In the steroid era, that that would give him kind of a benefit of the doubt, right? He was striking yeah. out three hundred dudes a year when all those guys were all jacked up on on Dianable, whatever it's called. What do you got, Ramos? <laughs> My question was: I think baseball, unlike the NFL, how Dan was talking about, just you know, every year there's always been a group of people. I think baseball has all these rules and um, type of places to get to to put you into the Hall of Fame. You know, I've always felt like I've never felt like I looked at football and said like. The guy needs to throw 50 touchdowns to make it this year, or he's got to break this record of 400 touchdowns in a career. In baseball, I've always known like 715 for Hank Aaron, 56 uh, you know hits for Joe DiMaggio, 300 wins for a pitcher, 500 home runs for a for a batter. Those were all milestones for a Hall of Fame kind of induction. I never felt like that in the NFL. I never thought there was some some number that I had to look for to be like, well, he threw his 400th touchdown. I guess he's in. So I, I, I think the MLB is a lot different. Now, now, I think it's changed. Like you guys are talking about, you know, Kurt Schilling has 200 and Lester at 200. For me, in the old school of baseball, they wouldn't be anywhere near a Hall of Fame because they didn't win 300 games. But I think that's changing a little bit. Totally changed. Yeah, I think that's not I mean, looked at had, anymore uh, as being had... the standard, but some people still look at it as the, the barometer, I guess. Help help me out, uh, um, Buyer. Uh, yeah. What's his name? The Big Fish um, in Seattle. He won the Cy Young, and I think he won like twelve games. Felix Hernandez. Felix Hernandez, right? Yeah. I mean, Felix Hernandez was the was was the sign that we view baseball completely different now with advanced metrics and you know the old days of wins and losses. But it's it's also important to point out that it's like you point out with Kurt Schilling, like he led the league like. 
it's a it was a different era back when he was one of those guys that he would always he would pitch as much as possible, and so it did save your bullpen, and maybe it taxed his arm, maybe it led to a higher ERA or whatever. But wins and losses did matter for a long, long time. They just don't matter as much now. Kurt Schilling's record in the postseason was eleven and two. No, I I said yeah. that eleven and oh, two was a two point two three ERA. My no, bad. it's okay. Two point two three ERA. <laughs> sorry, eleven and two. I hate he that. Was a, he was yeah. a give me the ball, yeah. and I'm going to win you a damn game. And and they won a World Series in Arizona. They took down the Yankees, and they won the obviously the bloody slack game in Boston, and they beat the Yankees in uh, and they beat the Yankees as well that year. So I, I'm with you there. Like it the the hard thing they're trying to do is like like Kurt Schilling's just he's toxic, um, and Kurt Schilling was. A very good Hall of Good regular season pitcher. I think he should go into the Hall of Fame personally. However, you feel about his politics, but I don't actually. That's not what we're supposed to judge guys on. But it is a very, very close one. And push comes to shove because nobody likes Kurt Schilling. He's not in. Not in. Life is a popularity contest a little bit. That's kind of kind of what it is. Fox Sports Radio has the best sports talk lineup in the nation. Catch all of our shows at foxsportsradio.com. And within the iHeartRadio app, search FSR to listen live. Doug Gottlieb show here on Fox Sports Radio. There are certain things that people can say and... <laughs> it uh, it make it it helps you know it helps you know. I'll share that with you in a second. The Doug Gottlieb Show is brought to you by Bet Rivers. Check out the latest lines from World of Sports at Bet Rivers Sportsbook. Bet Rivers is the trusted name in online sports betting. Got to be twenty one. President in Colorado, Illinois, Indiana, or Pennsylvania to play gambling problem. Call one eight hundred Gambler. Um, you ever uh, my favorite class I've ever had I wasn't nearly as good a student as I should have been okay when I was at Notre Dame for a year my first was it first semester or second semester I think it was yeah first semester I was one of 12 students who got to take the only class that was taught by the president of the school the president of the school at the time was uh, Father Malloy Monk Malloy was what he was known by Father Malloy was a former basketball player. He actually played in high school with the late, great John Thompson. And um, so he's a huge basketball fan. And that one class was an English class, like a freshman level, freshman studies English class. But it was like world English or world English discovery or something, something along those lines. And every Sunday you would meet in his boardroom. There were 11 other students. There's 12 advisors at Notre Dame, everyone could pick one. And I was like, for the athletic advisor, I got to be in this class. I don't know how. I mean, I do know how, but it's not worth sharing it. But the point is, it was like the people you're with were amazing. Like the first class, you just go around and tell a little bit about your background. And you're like, why am I here? <laughs> you know, you ever been in one of those meetings before? Um, And... It wasn't a hard class. Like, I don't think anybody got below a B minus. I think that was me. You just had to write a one to two page paper every week. Read one book that, that he would give you every week. And the books were from all over the world. And I, I remember 
I remember how the class worked, which is basically you come in and it would just be kind of an open discussion. He would kind of lead you a little bit, but just an open discussion on the book. And you kind of go around the room and people interject. But you know, when somebody gives a book report, you can tell if they've actually read the book. You know, and you had to be very careful. Like for me, I've never been a great reader, never been a fast reader. And here you're with all these brilliant people and you know, you're swimming upstream in school. There were some times in which I might not have finished the book and you're trying to hide your lack of knowledge for certain parts of the book, right? But anyone who's ever been in a classroom setting, you know, when somebody's giving a book report and they didn't actually read the book and you're like, Aha! that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. That guy's full of crap, right? Okay. So there's a bunch of coaching searches out there. And, you know, for example, I thought, I mean, like Harbaugh to Jacksonville makes sense only in that they need a culture makeup. He's been great with young quarterbacks in the NFL, except Trent Baalke is the GM. And to this point, doesn't feel like they're going to fire Trent Baalke. Trent Baalke and Harbaugh used to work together in San Francisco, but they had a major falling out. That's why Harbaugh was gone. And he went back to Michigan and became their head coach. Right. So if you hear somebody saying Harbaugh to Jacksonville, you if, unless they say Trent Baalke and I heard Cowher says Trent Baalke would have to be out first. It's it's a he doesn't know what he's talking about moment. Do you guys understand what I'm right? Anybody's been in a conversation with somebody when they say something that just like, wait, that person actually doesn't know what they're talking about. There's a former head coach that many people think should be a, a head coach that most people in the league worry about. His health. His health. And if you hear them talking about, you're like, why wouldn't that guy be a coach? Like, he seems really good. You know, there was a, it was Lane Kiffin to Miami or Lane Kiffin to to other places. Like, that one feels, Lane Kiffin has straightened out most of the stuff going on in his life. But there were some things that... before he got the old Miss job that other coaches, when he was in, down in Florida, was he, is it FIU, right? He was at FIU. You, you, he wasn't going to, he wasn't going to get a couple of the other jobs, you know? And I've said this about some of the other younger coaching candidates, right? There's, there are guys in which there are jobs that you're not going to get. For the most part, you're going to get a job where, um, you know, somebody, there's a connection there. You know? Andy Reid guys are going to hire Andy Reid guys. You know? That, that's that's how, it, how it usually works. Belichick guys are going to hire Belichick guys. Are there some people, like, I know the Chargers, they don't really, Telesco, people thought he'd hire Brian Dayball because they went to the same high school. But I think Telesco was like a senior. He was a freshman. There's no real relationship there. So there's a way to, to discover if it's just a media creation, if it's just a fanboy, hey, I like this guy creation. Sometimes there's a way to find out if a guy does, hasn't read the book and they just throw a name out there. Albert Breer joins us, senior NFL reporter at uh, the MMQB. Um, you, you heard the comments from John Mara like, this felt like one of those he he really believes that judge can turn around like the culture of that place 
But man, there were just some some things he said and did the last couple of weeks, which were frankly laughable. Not about fans, but people in the football community, and that's why he had to go. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, Doug. He, um, you know, kind of walked himself out on the plank over the last couple of weeks, and um, you know, I think part of that is you know, an inexperience and maybe not fully understanding how much weight your words carry when you are a head coach. Um, you know, and, and uh, like I, I think as recently as like the middle of last week, the Giants were, I mean, mostly um, decided on, okay, like we're going to go forward with this, um, you know, even though he had that 11-minute diatribe in the press conference. And then, you know, I think the way the team just like no-showed early in the game against Washington, you know, there was obviously the situation with the sneaks um, on third and long. Yeah, I think all of it added up to, and I think Mara said it himself, like, can I see a viable scenario where, um, where, where, where Joe Judge is able to kind of dig himself out of this and we can dig ourselves out of it around him? And maybe almost more importantly, can I sell a new general manager on that? And if I'm competing against Chicago, against Minnesota for general manager candidates, are we going to get the best guy here? Um, or is Joe Judge's presence here and you know, the fact that like the new GM comes in and they have to fire a coach after one year, is that going to be an impediment towards us getting the best guy? And I think that's sort of added up to Joe Judge being out where, you know, again, like I think even middle of last week, they never mind to keep him. And I think if you'd asked anybody high up in that organization, honestly, like three or four weeks ago, they would have said, you know, Joe's going to stay and he's actually going to have a hand in picking the next general manager. Man, that thing spun out of control in a hurry. Uh, okay, so, and, and of course, when you trade away, when, when you fire a GM, or he, sorry, he retires, and the coach is gone, who's forever tied to the quarterback, that means the, the quarterback's very, very much in doubt. Um, right. Who's the quarterback of the Giants next year? I don't think we can answer that until we know who the GM and the coach are. You know, and even then, I think it's sort of an evaluation. Now, the good news is, Daniel Jones hasn't been an abject failure. Um, there, there have been things there where you look at him and you say, okay, maybe you can work with this and this and this. And so, you know, I think at the very least, what Daniel Jones represents for the next coach is like he gives you some flexibility going forward. Um, in that, like maybe you don't have to overreach for a quarterback in the draft, or if you're if you like but don't love the idea of trading for Russell Wilson, you don't necessarily have to do that. In a way, like, and I, I don't know whether or not they're going to exercise his option for 2023. That's a decision they got to make between now and the beginning of May. Um, he gives you a year or two of flexibility where, you know, maybe he becomes more than he's been, but at the very least you can probably tread water with him for now. And you're not married to him to begin with. So, you know, if you want to get rid of him now, that's an option too. So I just think, like Daniel Jones being, you know, who he is and what he's been over the first three years of, the, of his career sort of sets up the next GM and coach to sort of use him as a piece to, to, to stay flexible, sort of stay loose, the quarterback position. Uh, the, the coach and the general manager both came out, at least outwardly, in support of Baker Mayfield. Does that have yeah. anything to do with, I mean, is, is that just, you know, I, I, you know, is that just a crushing him or leaving any sort of doubt, you know, kills any trade value or the chance that he does come back if they can't move him or they can't get the right guy? Or is that legitimately how they feel? I mean, I, I, I think they think he's a good player. I don't know if they think he's worth paying $40 million for. 
And really, like, that's the operative question here. Because, you know, the way these things work, if you're drafted in the first round, you know, four or five years later, what ends up happening is it becomes a yes or no question for your team. And, and, and the superstars have signed after three. You know, like, so Josh Allen, he got his contract after three years. Um, Deshaun Watson, Patrick Mahomes, they got their contract after three years. Even Jared Goff and Carson Wentz, who wound up being not long for where they were at, both those guys got contracts after three years. So, you know, typically the way this has gone is it gets awkward if you go into a fourth year without a guy signed um, to a long-term deal where, you know, I think it implicitly says you've got some doubts on him. Um, almost never do you go into a fifth-year option with a guy unsigned. And so I think the Browns are aware that this has potential to get awkward the way that it got awkward for the two guys who have gone there, and that's Marcus Mariota in Tennessee and Jameis Winston in Tampa. Um, yeah, I think they're well aware of the fact that you know the, this has potential to be a very delicate situation over the next year. And so if there's even the possibility they bring him back, they have to be very careful about the way they handle it. Um, does that mean they're not going to look for an upgrade or they wouldn't be up, open for an upgrade? I don't think that's the case. Um, but I think they, they want to leave open the possibility that, you know, like Baker Mayfield could be their quarterback next year because he's relatively affordable when you look at that position. He's got experience in the system, and, you know, he's, he, he dealt with an injury all year. Um, and I think if you want to create that possibility that he's back as your quarterback next year, you have to give lip service, you know, to – the idea that he is going to be that, you know? And so look, I think as much as anything else about, you know, sort of getting ahead of and, and smartly managing what could be, you know, their, their fate for the next year, but doesn't necessarily have to be. It's Doug Gottlieb show here on Fox sports radio. That is the voice of Albert Breer, senior NFL reporter on the Monday morning quarterback. Brian Flores is a guy who, I mean, people in the league respect Fans like players seem to at least on some level like I don't know about players who played for him. There's obviously the Miami Herald story going back to to, to yesterday. What what do you think happens with Flores in this cycle? I think he's going to get looks from a lot of people. I do think he's got some questions to answer though. You know, and so do I think it's automatic? No. Do I think he's got a good chance? Yes. I mean, he's very well respected. There's no question about that, and no one questions his ability to coach. The question, I think, is going to be people management. And, um, you know, I, I think you look at it, and it's it's right there for everybody. I mean, if you want to talk about why things went down this way, and I'm not saying that the owner made the right decision, but, you know, I think the owner knew there was discord between the, the general manager and the head coach. And so then his next move was, okay, like, well, let me look at, you know, their departments and what's going on in their departments. And the general manager, Chris Greer, had been there for 22 years, and there were no issues in the scouting department. And then, you know, you look at the coaching staff and three offensive coordinators in three years, three offensive line coaches in three years, two defensive coordinators in three years, two different play callers in 2021 alone. Um, you know, and, and, and I think, you know, it's, you look at it, you see, like, how hard he's been to work for. And, you know, again, I'm not saying it's right to connect, like, the, like an issue where, you know, like the coaching and the, the, the coach and the GM aren't on the same page and haven't communicated well. Um, but like, if you want to sort of dig into it, it's easy to look and see where you know the owner would arrive at the conclusion that it was the GM and not the co- that it was the coach and not the GM. And so that's what I think you know Flo's got to answer for. And look, like again, like I don't think anybody doubt. I don't think anybody questions you know whether or not the guy can coach. He can definitely coach. Um, you know, I think it's going to be the people management part of it that's going to be 
you know, what he's going to have to answer for and, you know, and confront on his own. And then, you know, I think once you get past that, it's going to be, do you have a coherent offensive philosophy that you can give us? Um, because, you know, obviously he's cycled through the different coordinators. And, you know, if you're looking at a job like Chicago, you know, the development of that young quarterback is so important. You, know, you can't have him going through that over the next few years. You, not, you need to give him some stability on that side of the ball. Yeah, you know, listen, it's, it's, it's interesting. There's a college basketball coach, I can tell you off air, I, I prefer not to on air, who, you know, he was at a different spot in his first three years, all new staff. He still has a, a staff cycle. And, you know, his team, I think this year is a little up, a little, little all over the place. And, you know, if again, it's kind of the same thing, really hard to work for. Just wears people out. And it, everybody will say, like, he's a really good coach. He does, and yeah. his teams have, have been good. But th- there is a, a point of people management, and there's an, another well, aspect to it. And here's the other thing, too, Doug. I mean, I, if you're talking about, like, and there are a lot of great football coaches that are hard to work for, right? Bill Belichick's hard to work for. Nick yeah. Saban's hard to work for. If, like, you're in one of those places and you look up and you see all these guys, how many millionaires have the Patriots made over the years? You know what I mean? Like, so if you're in one of these places, like Alabama or New England, and the coach is really hard to work for, but then you look at the final result and you see the trophies and you see how many millionaires those places have made, it's really easy to convince yourself, well, you know, yeah, this is uncomfortable, but I can work my way through it. When those results aren't there, things get uncomfortable and then you start losing, I mean, it's very easy for people to then say, why the hell am I doing this, you know? And so, like, it's, I just think it's harder to sell people on working in, those, in that sort of environment now than it used to be. And, um, and, yeah, I think that's what gets a lot of these Patriot guys, you know, is they go other places they're difficult to work for, and they don't have the trophy case to point at the same way that Bill does. You know, everybody's talking about the, uh, the end of the game timeout, which I think is – is a kind of a, a nonsense discussion uh, in terms of did did the Raiders change? They were going to run, run the football regardless. Yeah. But but Brandon Staley going for it, you know, at his own, what was it, 18, 19-yard line, the first half on fourth and two? I get yeah. we've trended we've trended where going for it on fourth down and not kicking field goals and going for two, but that feels a little extreme one year into a guy who is kind of one of these bright, young, shining new stars. What's the reaction around the league from that sort of performance at the end of the season? Yeah, I'm with you. I think I actually don't think there was any issue with the timeout at the end of the game at all. Like, None. if you really look at it, and yeah. I don't think people looked at it close enough, I, there were five seconds left in the play clock. So, like, and the Raiders were in a run formation. The Raiders were in a shotgun run formation. The Raiders weren't kneeling there. And so, you know, like, yeah, maybe the Raiders were planning on letting the clock run out, but if they had picked up 10 or 15 yards, you don't think they would have sent the kicker out there, especially when it, like, meant, like, avoiding going to Arrowhead the next week? They absolutely would have, you know? And I think in Brandon's situation, he's looking at it, he sees the play clock running down, and, you know, he's saying to himself, I've got the wrong personnel out there, so there's a chance that that happens. So I don't have any issue. I don't think there's – I think what he did was logical. Like, I don't have any issue at all with that. You you, you Um, and I agree there. The other one, there's no question. And, look, he's done these sorts of things all year. And I think, you know, one thing about Brandon is I think he knows the score with them, right? Like, so, like, he's gotten a lot of credit for his aggression over the course of the year. 
Um, and he always say, he'll tell you, he's like, I don't view those as gambles. I view them as advantage situations. Can I create an advantage for the team? Um, you know, and they do a lot of research into that. So um, I, I'm with you. Like, I would not have done that. Like, and I don't think, and I think it was like sort of an unnecessary, to me it was an unnecessary gamble that could create a ton of momentum for the other team. And, you know, like, that's the way I see it. But, you know, I think the way he sees it is he was trying to create an advantage for his team, and he showed confidence in both his offense to convert and his defense to clean up the mess after um, if it didn't work. And so it's a different way of thinking. And, again, like I think he deserves criticism for it, scrutiny and everything else. Um, but he has at least been consistent in making those sorts of calls over the course of the year. Albert, great stuff. Awesome regular season. We expect better performance out of you in the postseason. I'm kidding, of course. <laughs> no, we'll, we'll talk to you very soon. Yeah, I'll try to step up. Thanks, guys. Step up your game, Albert Breer, senior NFL reporter, the MMQB. Wait to hear what Colin Cowherd said about Matthew Stafford. Be sure to catch the live edition of the Doug Gottlieb Show weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific on Fox Sports Radio and the iHeartRadio app. Uh, Every day at this time, the Doug Gottlieb Show on Fox Sports Radio. We bring you a portion of a previous show on FSR. We call it... And now... Here's Colin Cowherd talking about Matt Stafford. Joe Judge, to me, wasn't ready for this moment. You know, this is another one of those Belichick coaching trees, and it doesn't work out. And part of this job, this is why it's so difficult when you're trying to bring in somebody. How do you handle the media? It's one of those things where, hey, football-wise, I'm okay. He's a positions coach. He's a special teams coach. He's not dealing with the media. And then we saw how he dealt with the media. He was a disaster. And then he gave that 11-minute rant the other day, and I went, no, stop. He's watched too many damn movies. This is how a football coach is supposed to act. He might be a successful coach one day, but you got to be able to be – you're representing the organization. you got to go in there and be chill, you know, you can be Dan Campbell, but that's how Dan Campbell played. Like nobody knows Joe Judge. Yeah, I, 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 I think the media part didn't help him. I also think that's part of New York, right? That, that the media they don't know what they don't know, and he's trying to teach him what they don't know, and it it just doesn't land right. Just doesn't land right. I mean, I I think I, the media thing hurt him. And hurt the narrative, but the the taking the knee on or whatever, essentially taking the the quarterback sneak on third and nine with the full house backfield. That was that's where you lose actual football. People are like, what are you doing? So, um, what's amazing about the Giants is you go back to when they took Saquon Barkley. When they take Saquon Barkley, the narrative was. The Giants should take quarterback because they're never in the top five. And here they are drafting in the top five again. Here's Colin Coward talking about Matt Stafford. So what is going to happen on shows like this that have strong opinions? We're not basically sports center here. We, we're an opinion show. That's what we do. We have theories and beliefs. We project. We predict. We're, a, we're an opinion show that occasionally has some sourcing. That's what we do here. So on a Monday, who would we really crush if they lost this weekend? Matt Stafford. And the Rams lose. And by the way, tough draw. They just beat Arizona. They got to play them again. Arizona's 8-1 and one on the road. 
Arizona's got a quarterback that does stuff you can't really defend off script. There's a high probability Arizona could beat the Rams. But because of the move off Goff and move into Stafford, you kind of pushed all your chips on the quarterback table. And Matt Stafford's never, I don't think he's ever won a playoff game, right? Like that's the knock on him. He's got a lot of talent. He's never won a playoff game. I don't think we'd crush the Rams per se. I think Matt Stafford would really get beat up if he lost this weekend or on Monday. I don't think there's any question. No question at all that Matt Stafford will take a, will, will take a beating if they lose that game. They're a four-point favorite, and the Cardinals kind of, you know, the Cardinals are actually better away from home than they are at home. Crazy. They're 8-1 and one on the road. They get J.J. Watt back. Uh, but the there's not a ton of belief in the Cardinals in the postseason, and Matt Stafford has to, has to, has to battle back against the own lack of belief. I agree with Colin. The Rams lose. It'll be about Stafford, even if Stafford plays well. Okay, Dan and Jeremiah is going to join us. We're going to talk that Chargers-Raiders game. He calls the game for uh, AM570, uh, um, which is the home of the Chargers. Plus, we'll try and figure out what he thinks the Giants can do to right themselves and the Bears as well. That's next, the Doug Gottlieb Show.